I do not think that South Africa will survive as a country. I think that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when the country breaks up. And I think that the goal of secession should not be to force a referendum. I think re- referendums are a stu- stupid idea. Because the, t- the only time you should ever have a referendum is when you know you'll win. And if you know you'll win, why are you having a referendum? You should just declare independence. I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched our videos and loved our content so far, please consider subscribing, liking our videos and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Nicholas Woodsmith. He's only 25 but has already published 21 novels and six short stories in sci-fi and fantasy. Some of them the best sellers like the Cat Drummond Monster Hunter series. He's also the editor of the National of the Rational Standard a website dedicated to bringing you constant classical liberal articles and has been and currently is a member of various political organizations such as the Institute of Race Relations. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. I mean, have, being 25 years old and already having written 21 novels and six short stories is actually quite impressive. What, what exactly motivated you initially to become an author? So um, when I was very young in the great times of 2007, before our world was destroyed by multiple financial crises um, and world revolutions and all that other terrible stuff, um, I got very much into Dungeons and Dragons and I would be the DM because no one else wanted to be the DM. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, DM is the dungeon master whose job is basically to host the game, set up the story and uh, keep things flowing. And um, that was started my love of storytelling, besides reading good stories. But, um, and as I grew up, I would play games like uh, Spore, which allowed you also to create stories and build worlds. But I also found those quite limiting, that you were uh, confined by game mechanics. And in the case of D&D, confined by the fact that only a set amount of players are witnessing your story. So I started writing uh, when I was 13, so uh, 2009, I started writing my debut sci-fi series, um, the Wolfmancer series. And uh, what motivated me was that I simply had stories to tell, but mostly uh, worlds I wanted to show people. Uh, My writing, my passion for writing started with world building and has developed over the years to also be more about character and uh, storytelling. That, that's awesome. I, I'm also a big fan of D&D and we have a session weekly and oh. you kind of have these stories that naturally evolve, but as the DM, you're also supposed to guide them in a certain direction. Uh, mm. the, the template which you write books is, is, you know, like I mentioned, quite impressive. Do, do those stem from the stories? Like how exactly do you write these this, this quickly? Uh, so um, I don't actually think I write that quickly, but I'm on a lot of author communities where um, they will post how, uh, how fast they write. So I feel quite slow by, in comparison. I know a few authors who um, push out full-length novels um, every week. They have, wow. okay. uh, two of them have had heart attacks though. So I, I'm not yeah. aiming for, yeah, <laughs> aiming for that. Uh-uh. Uh, but I think it's not really about um, speed. Now I do type very fast. I've been typing uh, since I was, um, first got my first PC in 2007. So it was a good year, 2007. Mm. Um, so uh, there's a lot of practice there, but I think it's more about discipline. It's not really about how many words you can push out per minute. 
it's more about ensuring that you write for a certain amount of time every day in order to put uh, to reach a deadline. Uh, for me, I will set um, strict deadlines, how many words I want to achieve every week, and I will make sure I achieve that quota and try to surpass it. And um, because I'm self-employed, the punishment for that is basically just self-guilt, um, which is very stressful, but it works. And also the incentive of trying to get these uh, new books out so my readers can enjoy them and hopefully that I can make some money out of it. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, being self-employed, yeah. you know, the, the, the financials are also something that limit you in terms of how little you can write per day, I'm assuming. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's also, though, it's harder because um, I'm not... So I have done freelancing before and freelancing is a great thing of, you know, you write, you pro- you do your project and you get paid. Um, so I would do freelance writing paid per, uh, paid per, uh, pay per, per word. And I write exceptionally quickly. So I have a very skewed idea of how much a person is supposed to earn hourly because I write so fast. Yeah. Um, so in the past I've earned just, so for uh, like a 1000 word article and I'll be paid uh, the two rand 50, um, standardized rate at the time. So I'll make 2,500 rand in an hour. And I'm like, and then I'll see people, my friends who are like doing real jobs who are being paid maybe like 500 bucks an hour. And I'll be like, what, what, why are you doing that job? (laughs) But I realized um, the problem with freelancing though is answered by the reason I'm not still freelancing is it's, um, it's hard to find clients. And with the global economy as it is, uh, people uh, aren't going to hire freelancers. They would rather cut content. Um, but that's why my main business is producing my own products, which are my books. But then those also lack an immediate incentive of being paid because you have to rely on marketing the book and you're always going to make a uh, initial loss before you make your money back. So after paying for covers, editing, um, advertising, a lot of advertising, um, but then as you gain a fan base, then they're going to buy it and, uh, reviews come flooding in and then, um, and that's where you get your dopamine, which pushes you and keeps you going. But um, on speed, I wasn't always this fast at writing and finishing books. Um, for my first book, that took me um, over three years to, to complete. My second book took me two years. And subsequently, each of those uh, book after that took me uh, one to three months. Mm. And that's simply because I was in school and university with my first two books. Then I took my gap year between that and my post-grad and through that, I was just, I was working full time. And if you're writing full time, it's pretty easy to actually finish novels. It's um, it, it, because if you work the, you know, the proper five to eight hours work time a day, um, I don't time myself. So I'm not actually sure how long I work for, uh, every day. Then you're going to be pushing out novels. I mean, you, you also obviously enjoy this quite a lot. I mean, yes, being I able to produce this, is, there's, there's a dopamine rush and when it gets published, when it gets read and so on. But the mm-hmm. stories itself, telling is also a bit of its own reward. What, what, what exactly part of, you know, writing, the writing process do you enjoy the most? Is, is it like the, the monumental scenes? Mm-hmm. Is it the smallest stuff? What, what exactly is the detail that you go into there in terms of enjoyment? So as I mentioned uh, before, um, it used to be the world building. I love crafting mm-hmm. worlds. I like uh, making sure that everything works. I love reading nonfiction and I love history. My academic background is history and politics and philosophy. So I like constructing a coherent background for my world, uh, for my stories. So the world building simply, but it has developed from there 
to become more of the, um, the characters and how they interact with the story. So I love the witty banter between characters and um, developing characters and so they become like real people in your head. I think one of the best feelings in the world is when you think of a character as if they're a person, not just someone that you're puppeting. And um, it's, it's rare. It takes a long time. And uh, with the Cat Drummond series, it was only really book three where I just suddenly thought that Cat is this person that I would, you know, want to have a beer with kind of thing mm. and not just someone in my head. Mm. But above all of that, my favorite thing to do is all those small little pieces of storytelling, the subtle hints, the, um, the foreshadowings and the symbols that will build up to a conclusion that readers will not expect. But when they look at it, they're like, wait, the clues were there. I could have figured it out. And that's what I love. I like the, and it's what I'm constantly criticizing or, try, or appreciating in storytelling and films and in TV series and other books is, could I have figured this out um, beforehand? I don't want to figure it out, but I want to have the possibility that I could have. And that's what I like to achieve. That's actually quite interesting because, I mean, every time, you know, a, a big series of either books or, or movies comes out, you always get almost, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the supernatural an hour later, a YouTube video comes up with like seven things that you missed, you know, those irritating clickbait articles, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you have those and it's all these things or the foreshadowings and the extra details and stuff that the writers put into it. And some of the people that don't necessarily follow that sometimes think, I mean, you guys are like fishing for stuff here. Like it's mm -hmm. did the, did the writers seriously put this much, you know, detail into foreshadowing. Is it possible to figure out the story before the end of the story? It's like, how much exactly from your experience and fellow writers, does this foreshadowing and, and the hints in between, how much do you like to hint to the end of the story? Or do you think that's just the building up the subconscious um, background of the story so that the ending is much more fulfilling when it arrives? I think that good writers will put hints and great breadcrumbs into their story. So um, the ending will become, will seem natural. Hmm. And um, while I have read entertaining books that do not have this, I am a big fan of it. And I think that um, very good storytelling will have it. But you, if your book, do you think history but, has it as well? Is that, yeah, is definitely. That history. It's so um, I think that because I love history, my background is mainly history, and I'm mostly reading historical nonfiction at the moment. Um, I like. I'm a big fan of cause and effect, and I think that I this needs to be brought into um, fiction writing. Um, it's uh, something that uh, I learned in uh, creative writing in school as well. That um, especially when writing comedy is it can be, it's very easy to just write an absurd comedy where just random things happen, but it's not that fulfilling and it's not long lasting. You need to have reasons why things happen, even in comedy. And it can be absurd reasons, but there at least needs to be some reason. A kind of, um, I think um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a very good example, yeah. that there's a lot of absurdity in it, but within the confines of the storytelling, it makes sense. So we think it seems random that a towel is the most important thing that you can have, but they explain why. And that's what makes it important. There needs to be cause and effect and reasons. Yeah, yeah. Even, even, even in a scenario, like I'm also a big fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And even that scenario, they, they always have something that preludes it. And sometimes they don't actually give you enough time to think about it. Mm. You just have time to have that reaction of like, hey, that's weird. And then, you know, the, the, the realization and the rationale hits. And that's, that's what makes it so effective in, some, mm. in my case, at least. Um, what of the books that you've written so far do you feel is your favorite? Is it always the last one because you're the most experienced with it? Mm -hmm. Or is there one that like just stands about of the rest? Are you really happy with it? 
I'd say my latest books are probably always my least favorite, mostly oh, really? because they freshen my mind and I'm always the most judgmental of a book when it's still fresh in my mind and I'm still writing mm. it. I, there's only one of my books, which I actually enjoyed, which I actually thought, okay, this is a great book while writing it. That was book nine of the Cat Drummond series, The Fay Hunt. And that was mostly because I planned it out and everything fell into place, but there were shifts while I was writing it, which I felt improved organically while I was writing. So it was a pleasure to write when even the books, which I enjoy in hindsight, there's some part, there's a lot of parts which are straining, like there's scenes which I'll be stuck on and I will um, not enjoy writing it, which I just want to get over and done with. And it comes out nicely and I'll, I'll read it a few months later or in editing. And I'll say like, and this is actually pretty good that this Nicholas Woodsmith chap is, you know, he's a passable writer, but um, (laughs) I really enjoyed writing book nine. Yeah. I think that the way that I structured it before writing, it was very clear. So yeah. it was just a pleasure to write. It's not my favorite one of my books, though. I will say okay. that um, there are possibly two books which are my favorite. Book three, because it's the book which I felt that people were invested enough in the series by that time that I could start taking risks. Mm. And the risk that I took was that it became a lot more philosophical. Right. It started going much more into ethics, much more into discussing religion. And, um, and also allowed my character to be vulnerable and allowed her to actually air her views. And she starts, and this is possibly why she became more human is that she was able to start discussing what she actually believes. Mm. And, um, even though it's one of my older books and I think that I have improved as a writer since then, I still like it for that reason. Mm. The other book, which, um, I th- uh, which I, do, I think is great because it allowed me to take some of my new writing skill, but without the baggage of the series is the side story to the cat Drummond series, uh, blood hunter, which is a prequel following one of the side characters. Mm-hmm. So it stars Guy M. Gebe, who's a Corsa vampire hunter as he, ha- who's faced with an encroaching Zulu empire and an alternative, uh, magical South African future and has to face off against these vampire Lords who are uh, subjugating his homeland. And, um, I really enjoyed writing that because I had to put in a lot of effort. I put, uh, I did a lot of research into Zulu and, um, cause of mythology and customs, but also I just enjoyed being able to look at this world from another, um, from some new eyes and um, get into someone else's head because I'd been in Kat's head for so long. That was good to just, it was fresh getting into a new one. Also, while series are the big money spinners, and I also enjoy series as a format more. I think that long-term storytelling, you can do funner things, which I enjoy like long foreshadowing, like revealing a villain in book one, and then they only really become the main villain in like book nine. Um, The... um, (laughs) um there i also enjoy the standalone because the standalone allows me to be quite concise and allows me to um tell a good story without having to worry about a long-term arc and while the blood hunter does connect to the main series and this definitely sets up uh, conflicts in the next series it allowed me to tell a story without having to worry about the long term with me which allows me to um be uh, also it also forces me to be putting a lot more effort into characters because i know that i don't have a lot um more books to develop them mm. but it also allows me to be a little bit freer that i don't have to worry about this character maybe people won't like him because you know he's not going to appear in the next book t- uh, type mm. thing 
Um, so I enjoyed Bloodhunter a lot. And read, readers who have read it enjoy it. But uh, because it's not part of the main series, it is uh, less popular, mm, um, yeah. which is always a problem. I, I knew when writing it, there was going to be a passion project. Right, right. That's, that's actually, you know, I mean, if, if, if you look at series, like big popular series that, you know, either got converted into, into um, uh, movies or TV series, such as the Game of Thrones and stuff like that, once they, once they get almost this, uh, I want to say critical mass in terms of a following, there's definitely a scenario of what people want to happen. But there's also mm. a case where they start to trust the writers because they, they, they enjoy the series. So they trust them like, you know, I don't know what comes, what comes next. And that's the part that I enjoy. You know, they mm. can take risks. They can go a bit crazy about it. But sometimes surprise merely for surprise's sake doesn't, is, it has the exact opposite mm. effect where it's like a, a, a backfire onto the audience. Um, so, you know, taking risks and stuff like that. Do you always feel that, that the ones where you take risks and they're not necessarily already invested in the series that those will always be less successful? Or do you think that the one-shot series like the one you just described now can also be a massive hit, even though you know, you're coming in from this completely blind, the characters don't have an entire series to develop mm. and stuff like that? I think it's always, um, thing about risk is that mm. it's like a gamble. It can pay off and it cannot, you don't really know. I wouldn't do it at all if I didn't think it would have any possibility of success. Okay. Um, I think, but I think that with risks and storytelling, if you stick to storytelling fundamentals and if you believe that this is good enough, then there's going to be at least a few readers who are going to enjoy it. Right. I think the problem with things like uh, game of Thrones is um, after they got off of the uh, Martin's um, source material, yeah. it became a story by committee. And we know from um, sayings and history that committees are very bad at doing things, especially yeah. doing collaborative storytelling. I think it would be far better if they actually played a D&D game and sorted out the story that way. Yeah. A big problem with Game of Thrones as well is that they wrote things um, with an algorithm that basically it became trauma and shock porn. Um, okay, yeah. Which is yeah. shock for shock's sake type thing. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Also, they did not consult um, experts and they, uh, um, on things. So the, the early Game of Thrones battles are really good. Yeah. And they, uh, they stick to, in general, medieval tactics. Obviously, they get things wrong because battles in real life are not as entertaining as battles as we want them to be in, uh, in the cinema. Yeah. The problem is, is, but they did stick to um, general basics. You know, archers behind, pikemen in front, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, season eight had that dreadful battle at... Um, Winterfold. It's so long. Winterhold or whatever. God, it's yeah, been a yeah. long time and Game of Thrones has just been wiped my brain because yes, of how terrible yeah. last yeah. season was. Yeah. But um, yeah. putting their trebuchets at the front and just abandoning them, the battle did not make sense. So I wouldn't even call that a risk. I would just call that a complete misfire because they did not consult anyone with half a brain cell of <laughs> military knowledge. How is this, how do you think this is even possible? I mean, because you'd think that, you know, with that much risk riding on it, people would actually be more prepared. Or do you think it was a time constraint thing? They were pushed for results and that's where they make obvious mistakes. So with that battle, I honestly I don't know how they got away with it because right. um, it should just be, ba it's, it should just be basic that you, you know, you have walls, you put your troops yeah. behind the walls. Oh, yeah. you have ranged weapons, which once they are, mobbed by the zombies that you can no longer use them keep them behind the walls also especially that they have a oh, they have an arching fl uh, um, firing arc so you don't need to fire straight now i can understand um 
if you have a Gatling gun that only fires straight, right. that you put that at the front. Yeah. But they didn't. They weren't using that. They firing up. Mm. But they um, there's some very good channels uh, uh, which criticize uh, battles in fiction. Mm. Um, yes. Can't remember the name. There's this one guy. Baz battles. Might be him. Um, but there's right. a lot of them. Shadow Versity does quite a lot, but I find yes. he's his videos are way too long. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. and they tend to be quite repetitive. So I only watch a few. But there's another guy, and I, th- I think it's with Generation Films. If mm. I stand to be corrected, though. And um, but I think battles do not have to be unrealistic to be um, entertaining. Now, there's definitely things that you need to keep in mind. Stuff that I uh, always you know, explain to my dad, who's like was in the army. He's like, oh no, those guys are too close. Um, and they, you know, they're going to be shot. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't mind that because you have cameras have constraints and having right. people spread out accurately, you're not going to be able to see them on film. It's going to be a bad shot. So mm. I want things to look good on screen, but that doesn't mean you have to be stupid. I think that a battle would have looked just as good, if not cooler, if they stuck to just common sense in the battle mm-hmm. of winter or something. Winterfell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Winterfold, whatever. Yeah. yeah, uh, Winterfell, no, yeah. Tons of names. But anyways, coming, coming back to uh, back a bit to writing, I was a incredibly interesting discussion, but I also was curious about, you know, having written so many books, do you, because this is something that, you know, every non-writer always hears about, that whenever a writer isn't producing something, uh, like the aforementioned Game of Thrones, um, you know, we always have this this phenomenon called writer's block that we just mm. attribute to almost any type of series that isn't continuing at the moment. Is is that a thing? Do you experience writer's block, um, you know, as someone who writes fast? So I don't think specific to writing. So I, I don't believe that there is a writer's block. I believe that um, in all things that we do, that we go through slumps, we just get exhausted. Right. I know right. with the lockdown, also because of the time of the year, also because I've just been sick quite a lot, um, COVID or non-COVID, not sure. Um, I do get exhausted. Yeah. I have, I, so at the moment, I'm taking a little bit of a break. But also I think it's just, it's natural. People need to take breaks. So I wouldn't call it writer's block because I've outlined my series. They're ready to start being re- uh, written. And also I have a huge backlog for people to go through. And so, so a big part of it is also waiting for people to catch up. Right. Um, but um, if it's for specific writer's block, when people, you know, sit at the, at the desk and they're like, oh, no, I can't write anything. I think a lot of time that's um, a lot of amateur writers are the types of people who be like, okay, I just want to write a novel. They don't have any plan for, you know, becoming an author, but they want to write a novel because that's something you do. Um, they, th- they imagine this thing because they think that um, words are just going to start coming out of them in this magical sense where they're going to have an epiphany yeah. and the story is just going to come onto the, onto the page. I hear stories of this happening to authors, but I don't really, um, if it does happen, it's something that you should not rely on. What you should rely on is just simple discipline. You should plan, come up with vague story ideas. You should brainstorm your story. You need to come up with an outline. You need to know in general what themes your stories are going to contain, who your characters are going to be, your setting. And you should, I know a lot of people will call themselves pantsers, which comes up, you write on the seat of your pants. I don't know how that works. (laughs) <laughs> I plan everything. I outline. Right. First, I come up with my idea for my story, my themes, my settings. Then I will divide it into um, the different sections. So the rising action, the um, central part, the central bit where I basically just have a bunch of exposition, <laughs> bunch of exposition yeah, yeah. side stories. And I have, you know, the falling action, you know, all that plot stuff. Then I write, then I do chapter by chapter, then scene by scene. I plan everything with bullet points. And, um, and then, uh, and throughout while, while I'm writing, if I come up with an idea for a later scene, 
I will quickly just scroll down and go uh, add a bullet point for that scene later on. And I'll do that all the time. I have um, little sticky notes, this, all over my room where I will um, write notes when I come up with them, like just a phrase or um, if I come up with a nice sent a sentence for some dialogue, I write it down. The reason I write them down in, uh, on sticky notes is that they're messy. So I will want to then transcribe that onto my computer as fast as possible so I can throw the sticky note away. When I find a problem with um, notepads like this, is that while they're nice and tidy and they're you know, nice and traditional and everyone wants a nice cool notepad, um, once I put my notes in there, I kind of forget about them. Right, yeah. So, and that's why that's over there because I still haven't transcribed those notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about um, post-it notes is if you put it all over, it's almost constantly in your face mm. and it's like ideas, it's single bullet points. Whereas if you write it in a book, you might think that you're writing down too much or something like that. It's, it's certain things that I've, um, I've, I've experienced as well. Um, I wanted to ask about um, sci-fi and fantasy specifically. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting in terms of what's you know, popular at the moment in terms of reading and, and, and what draws the most eyes and audience specifically. I remember that uh, back in, I think it was uh, like 2001 or the early 2000s, you know, the, the X-Men movie series finally came out. And that was some of the first movies where they took, um, you know, pure, you know, uh, superpowers and sci-fi and fantasy, and they tried to give it to a broader audience with a you know, mm -hmm. serious appeal. And then obviously the Lord of the Rings uh, movies for fantasy did exactly the same thing, bringing something that was uh, not quite as popular in terms of uh, you know, the, a large audience, and then broaden that as well by just being just that damn good. Um, and so over the past years, I want to say 20 years, we've actually seen more and more and more with Marvel films and other fantasy books and series getting more and more audience and be able to get more and more people to listen to this and be interested in sci-fi and fantasy. So, you know, this has definitely been a growing trend in terms of what's interesting, what's popular and audiences. But do you still feel like by particular choosing to write sci-fi and fantasy that you're limiting your audience, that, that there's only a certain percentage of people that will really be interested in, and that the larger ones, the, the, the other ones like fiction and, you know, maybe more popularly, more, more generally popular series would be better in terms of getting a bigger audience? So I think that's always going to be a risk whenever you categorize your fiction. But the problem with not categorizing your fiction is that people will then have no expectations when looking at your series. And if people don't have expectations, they're not going to hype your series, which means they're not going to even try reading it. You have to categorize your books into genres so people know what they're dealing with. So they know, okay, I've enjoyed fantasy in the past, so I will enjoy this book because it claims to be fantasy. Well, I may enjoy this book. Right. And... Um, so there's definitely the risk that you are um, pigeonholing yourself, but I think that the uh, far greater risk of not pigeonholing yourself would be that people are just not going to notice your book. Right. And this is why we get this genre, this broad genre of literary fiction, which is yeah. the basically what all the English academics want you to read, but no one actually buys and very few people actually enjoy. Um, people like genres. And right. even and the risk of writing in sci-fi and fantasy is that I'm not going to appeal to people who like pure romance. I'm not going to enjoy uh, uh, appeal to people who like pure action or spy thrillers or that stuff. But those people, but if, if I was to write spy thrillers, people who like sci-fi won't enjoy my books either. Right. But also, what I like about sci-fi and fantasy is there. Some people would argue they're not even genres. They argue that they're more of an aesthetic choice. They're more of a a broad uh, um, philosophy of writing. Mm. Uh, that sounds a little bit pretentious, but 
that's uh, but it's also revealed by the fact that sci-fi and fantasy is divided into so many subgenres. You don't just get sci-fi; you get hard sci-fi. You get space opera. You get space marines. Right. You get fleets, right. uh, star fleets. You get um, mm. all these weird other things. And fantasy is separated into high fantasy, epic fantasy, uh, contemporary fantasy, um, urban fantasy, paranormal romance, um, mm. all these other things. And then those will separate into even smaller things with their themes. So if you go into urban fantasy, then you go into wizards, uh, um, wizards, and you go into monster hunters. Then you get into um, werewolves and shifters and all that other stuff. It's because people want to know what they're getting into. So they want very specific categories. Um, in fact, I think a big problem with my sci-fi was not that I am not appealing to a broad audience, but that I was slightly too broad with how I defined my sci-fi. So that's why, so I'm not appealing to those niche audiences. Mm. Um, but even then, I'm not worried about saturation. There are a lot of readers in the world and a lot of readers love fantasy and sci-fi. Mm. So um, I, I, um, saturation is far off my list of worries. By the time I get there, I think I, yeah. I'm, will be retired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I ever yeah, get yeah. there. I, I also want to, you talked about, you know, I, I want to go as far as say what you said is not pretentious in any way or form. I feel like sci-fi and fantasy has this fantastic capability to be able to explore um, historical um, mm. happenings in a completely different scenario. Even sometimes uh, what happens is they'll, they'll take an extreme version of something that happened in history, portray mm. it through sci-fi in a ridiculous setting, and that highlights the rationalities and the, and the situations in it so it can be discussed more uh, thoroughly. And that actually brings a philo philosophical element to mm. analyzing sci-fi in a way. It's like, you can enjoy it. Sure, it's, you know, it's, it's not real. And it'll, it'll you know, not, I don't want to say never, will, will never be real, but certain things will probably never be real. So you don't have this risk of thinking, okay, this is going to happen. I need to worry about this. You can just enjoy it. But you can also take a philosophical angle to it as well. Um, and that's, that's a part mm. why I also quite enjoy sci-fi and fantasy. And we have this fantastic series like Star Trek, which basically the Enterprise was just a vehicle for them exploring a vast number of different classical philosophical scenarios and then seeing how these characters would react and how they create. Is that a game that you also play when writing your books? Cause I, I know you do weave it into your books, but is that something you actively think about when you do it? And how much do you, is that also a big part of what you enjoy to do? Uh, philosoph putting philosophical messages into my book. Right. You know, those, those yeah. subtexts and then exploring those scenarios. Oh, definitely. So mm -hmm. I, uh, going back to my history, I definitely like, using historical scenarios, playing with alternative history, speculative history, and, um, and also just trying to see, I love medieval history. And I think that uh, throwing fantasy into a modern setting changes the game a little bit, which allows you, uh, you to kind of put medieval things into a modern setting, saying, okay, mm -hmm. what happens if we put some dragons against, some against an M1 Abrams? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and what happens if people have, magical plate mail that reflects bullets which kind of returns uh, battles to like melee combat um mm. so I, I do definitely love playing with those con uh, concepts and also bring up philosophy so uh, as i mentioned earlier i um in cat Raman book three i discuss a lot more about ethics ethics mm. is probably one of my favorite um, branches of philosophy and um a lot of the time the cat will be faced with moral ideas of um, does he have the right to kill this certain being mm. um, is self-defense really an actual argument um, because, because, you know, it gets a lot grittier than that. And also it's a lot of the time she's preemptively striking. So would that even be uh, self-defense? But um, 
and also goes into religion and um, and political philosophy. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of politics, especially in the later books, because I knew that okay, the readers are hooked now. I can start be doing boring things like politics. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I definitely do enjoy it. I um, I'm not going to be one of those authors who are going to say, you know, this is you know a very yeah, intelligent book that you know you're going to expand your mind. I'm not going to go around and say well, you, uh, you you read this for intellectual urban fantasy because I find people who say that. And I'm not going to read their books, but um, I definitely enjoy it when an author writes a book that's fundamental purpose is to be fun, but then puts in these intelligent themes. Kind of right. like you, um, unboring yeah. politics, actually. By doing exactly, this. yeah, yeah, it's exactly yeah, that's, that. That's really cool. Um, so um, uh, yeah, so um, I definitely like to put in uh, uh, these themes. And uh, I can discuss the themes <laughs> if you would like. Yeah, actually, in, in, in terms of how do you combine uh, your political interests with your, with your writing and, mm-hmm. and like how would you describe your political philosophy in terms of how you combine that? If you go into that more detail, I think that'll lead mm-hmm. into the next section quite nicely. So while I'm not actually a fan of what I call preachy fictions, um, I do definitely have political messages in my books. Uh, but the way that I'll distinguish that from preachy fiction is all books have a message and all books have... Right. But, uh, political and uh, philosophical themes, but a preachy book is very unsubtle about it. It's like uh, bringing a sledgehammer when you should actually be using a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. And um, so my books definitely will have these themes, but they come out, I would say subtler through character action. So rather than, you know, in the description saying, oh, here's a politician, he's a dick. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will, um, I will have the characters, um, I will show rather than tell. And the characters will voice their opinions and that's where the themes will come through. So uh, while my political views will come through, it will not come through um, the me, the author as a narrator. It will come through possibly the characters themselves. And even then, some of the characters disagree with me. And I have disagreements with my main character, Kat Drummond. Mm-hmm. I'm working on her. Um, <laughs> uh, she'll see my way eventually. But... Uh, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> We do share uh, uh, we do share political views. We have a ge- we generally share a view of government, which is that um, I think it'd be best just to quote Cat uh, Drummond here. Um, so from book nine, uh, when asked what her political views are by a politician, long story, she replies mm-hmm. after a heavy sigh, "I'm a frustrated anarchist. I just want to be left alone, but I know I never will be because there are always psychopath- psychopaths wanting to rule and sheep willing to follow them." So cats, like me, definitely anarchists don't trust authority, don't trust government, but we also don't think that anarchy is going to be achieved. Right. So it's kind of trying to create a compromise with that. Hmm. So she avoids political authority as much as she can. She doesn't like cops. She calls them techs. Um, and it, and it goes into the theme of how she doesn't like cops. And she has to work with cops quite a lot because she's a monster hunter and mo- a lot of monsters are created by humans who fall within the, uh, um, the purview of the police. So she has to work with cops sometimes. And she, has, and she ends up befriending some cops and getting along with a few, but also making enemies. Hmm. And um, so I, I don't try to show this, you know, blunt intru- instrument that all people who work for the public sector are evil because, you know, that's false. But... She will also, Kat will also generally say that as much as she, there are cops who she respects, she doesn't respect the profession because of those inherent flaws that a cop is going to be rewarded regardless of what they do. And as long as there are bad laws, cops will be inherently bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So is, is, is it's almost like the, the, the limited by the system more than the individual, or is it because they're brought up in the system that they generally follow the lines? Sorry, it's more that the system is inherently a problem. It's right. that, um, it, it, for example, with ESCOM, which is one of my um, big, big interests, I've written um, a, a lot of papers about ESCOM and why it sucks. Mm, and yeah. um, it doesn't matter how competent people who work for ESCOM will be, they might be able to hold up the roof for a little bit, but um, eventually the system is just broken inherently because public sector monopolies don't work because they do not have the incentive to do a good job and they do not have access to information uh, to proper information because they mm. set their own prices. So they are immune to um, the price system, uh, the um, price signals. And yeah, you need yeah. price signals to be able to <laughs> actually do business yeah. and to, um, and what, and the problem with that is because we had overly cheap electricity um, due, uh, in the nineties and before the economy grew unsustainably and now, because this public sector monopoly has just destroyed everything else. Right. And with cops, the problem with them is that a Kat Drummond, she's a monster hunter who works um, <laughs> hunt to hunt. She uh, feeds herself based on which monster she have, she's killed. If she doesn't get, uh, if there's no monster to kill or if she fails to kill a monster, or if her hospital bills pay for all of her, um, or just uh, sap up all of her paycheck, she doesn't get anything when a cop can literally in real life and in this world can literally just sit on their ass all day and they get paid their salary at the end. Mm, yeah. She doesn't like that. Yeah. Um, and that's a fundamental it, problem with them. It, it is, it is, it is. Um, it's a very important, almost want to say it's, it's more important that necessarily whatever side of the argument one lies that the argument is being had is way more mm. important that the discussion is being followed through. And I feel like that's something that's quite cool to do with writing because you need to have this discussion to be able to figure out what the problems are. And in writing, you motivate people to think about this, almost want to say as a no risk scenario, even though these are real situ situations mm. that they go through entire lives and they have interactions with these types of systems, in a, if, if they can, you know, almost want to say externalize into a fancy sense, they can debate this better. And do you hope that that discussion happens among your readers or do you have proof that it happens among your readers? Oh, I definitely hope it happens. And I know that, um, I know a lot of my readers have sadly been converted to my line of thinking. So I'd say it's very effective propaganda. Mm. And, um, and I don't know if they discuss, if many readers out there are discussing their work. Um, there's, uh, for, I have seen forum discussions a little bit, but um, I'm not at that level yet where forums are just flooded with discussions about my books. Right. Hopefully I get there. But I have seen yeah. a few discussions about the philosophy. And mm. um, ironically, I thought there would be a lot more debate about religion because Kat is a, uh, she's not even atheist. She would more be a, she's a problem of evil atheist uh, in the sense that she doesn't believe uh, that. And her views are challenged quite a lot. There's a scene where she's asked by her um, childhood priest if she believes in God, and she replies that, that she believes in gods. Not because she's a pagan, uh, but because yeah. in this world, um, the, the, the gods of um, mythology, of Hellenism and Norse, uh, Norse paganism, have come into the real world. And they've revealed themselves to be much less spectacular than, um, than what we expect deities to be. Yeah. But what she's trying to really say is that she doesn't see deities as that special. But when she gets into it, she has a very ethic. Uh, um, she has a moral problem with religion and right. it gets into that. I was expecting a lot more um, kickback from that, mm. but mm. the readers, I haven't gotten any kickback from that. It's mm. kind of disappointing. I wanted to actually have a little bit of a, I wanted to see people engage with that, but I think 
it might actually be a sign that I was, I think that I was quite respectful with how I uh, approached it because cats um, may uh, side characters, her companions are not multiest or atheists like her. Right. They um, are much more charitable to theism and um, they debate this uh, debate with her. So I think because I did expose all sides of the argument, uh, people didn't really mind as much. And they, they probably thought that maybe as an author, I actually sided with the view that they agreed with. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, I want to say, a, a bit more of a personal discussion. So it's quite possible people are having these among themselves, but mm. on a public forum, you know, a place that you could probably view it as a writer, you know, a place you can find the discussions. They're not necessarily having those in those cases, but they're having more the political discussions there. So it'll probably exactly, take a bit yeah. of a while before people bring those in the open. But um, let's, let's bring this back again a bit to, um, because we started us off by combining it with, political um political mm. views you are part of an organization called um the rational sorry uh, 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 yeah organization called the rational standard which is a website that mm. delivers uh classical liberal articles for people um what exactly is this and the other political organization the um institution for race relations what exactly are they hoping to achieve what what, what is the goal of them and, and why do you uh, why are you part of them so rational standard first um yes. we are a could call us in our most humble origins a blog, but in um, but more news a commentary site. We're an opinion site where classical liberals, libertarians, that broad taint of liberty, can um, contribute opinion articles, analysis, and sometimes news. But we try to stay away from that because there's a lot of legal problems with claiming right. to be a news yeah. site. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that based on how incompetent um, the news media in South Africa is, but um, yeah, yeah there, you, you, there's apparently higher standards if you call yourself yeah. a news site. But um, we provide, uh, provide a platform for classical liberals and libertarians to provide commentary on affairs around South Africa, Africa, and just in philosophy itself. So we were founded in ooh, 2016. We had a forerunner called the South African Libertarian in um, 2015. And we were founded in response to the fallist movement. So when we're having fees must fall, roads must fall. Right. And during the time we noticed that um, a few of the sites that were left, like the Daily Maverick used to post good articles and um, that there were only a few sites that still posted good things, but they also wouldn't post the brand of opinion articles that we thought were needed to counteract the heavily radical communist and socialist and fascist um, of, of think pieces well, I say think very um, yeah. sarcastically that were being pushed out in South African media. So we founded um, to fulfill a gap in the market, a gap which has actually been filled by quite a few people since then, like Daily Friend. And, um, and we also see that a lot of uh, um, websites are now allowing more platforms for liberty-oriented th- uh, thinkers. And also a lot of podcasting has also just taken over. And we have all these podcasters yeah. who are um, also providing. So Rational Standard... Yeah doesn't have as much need, uh, of a purpose since, um, oh no, we still have a purpose. We don't, but our purpose isn't as niche as it used to be. It used right. to be that there was no other platform for, pe- for these people's ideas, but now there is. And um, but, so we're just one of the platforms. So we continue like that. Hmm. And its purpose is simply to provide an exclusive platform for liberty uh, um, oriented thinkers. Because hmm. while there's platforms like politics web, which are great, anyone can post on those. So you have, um, uh, so you effectively, even though the politics web is run by Liberty thinkers, it's um, connected to Frederick Norman Foundation and was also connected to Institute of Race Relations. You, they still provide a platform for collectivists. 
And our philosophy was, why should we provide them with a platform when they don't provide us with a platform? Right. So, and it's also an admission that all media is biased and we want to admit our bias. So, because we believe that all people should admit their biases. Mm. There's no, even with things like statistics, which are probably the most biased, but people think that numbers can't be biased. Um, I mean, as a data scientist, I can tell you numbers can be biased. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, the rational standard simply was just, we were providing honest liberal commentary about South Africa and Africa. Mm. And um, we're not perfect. Nobody is. But uh, we did provide a platform for a long time, the exclusive platform for a long time. And I um, got a lot of testimonies. I'd meet people sometimes um, who would uh, realize that I was like the, one of the co-founders of the Rational Standard. And mm. they would say, what, what? I thought it was like this big company that did it. And then yeah, they would yeah, like yeah. thank me because they like, yeah. and they would tell me about how before the ra- they discovered the Rational Standard, they thought these ideas, but then like they didn't know anyone else had these ideas. Mm. And they were just um, scared. But mm. uh, Rational Standard helped all these libertarians and classical liberals come out of the woodwork and realize that they have a home. It also mm. helped yeah. a lot of our writers. Um, yeah. it, it didn't help us, but it's helped the movement in general that the Rational Standard ended up becoming almost a training ground for um, professional classical liberals and libertarians. A lot of our yeah. writers graduated to go on to the Free Market Foundation to work at um, Sarkalika and um, the Institute of Race Relations. Right. It's bad right. for us because we lose writers, but <laughs> good yeah, in the yeah, long yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. Because um, effectively, I would see us now, our purpose would be a junior <laughs> training place for young writers to um, eventually graduate to the professional liberty movement. Right, right. So now well, the me... Institute of Race Relations. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, no. no so sorry. In... I want to say the Institute of Race Relations. So the Institute of Race Relations is one of South Africa's oldest think tanks. It was, um, I think it was founded in 1948. It might be earlier than that. Wow. Um, okay. but very old and um, its name it, it, at the beginning uh, was to uh, basically try to provide reason-based liberal appro- a, a reason-based liberal approach to um, South Africa's race issues. Right. But uh, today they still do that to a degree, but it's mostly trying to contest the terrible um, arbitrary and irrational um, communist and socialist uh, um, policies, which just pervade our society so the Institute of Race Relations is a classical liberal think tank, borderline libertarian. A lot of people call them conservative. I don't like the term conservative because I think it doesn't actually mean anything. And um, they um, very big. They self-sustainable. Uh, Franz Krenier is a just a tremendous thinker. So he's their um, CEO. And he's, um, I'd say he's borderline a prophet. If you just read right. his books, he just is uh, ability to predict what's happening in South Africa um, and also his humility that he says, well, you can't take this, for gro- uh, um, this, uh, this is just a prediction, is just um, unparalleled. And he's also exceptionally good at running a business. And he realized the Institute of Race Relations, even though it's a nonprofit, needs to run like a business or it's going to fall apart. Right. So um, they, he wrote an article recently and he discusses this a lot, where um, when the first corporate donor to Institute of Race Relations um, cut their funding because of some controversial policy that the Institute um, supported, he framed their, um, their letter of cutting funding. And it was a point of pride because he's built the Institute to be um, unflinching in its ideals and also to be self-sustainable. So it doesn't need these corporate donors. It's nice if they get them, but it's, mm. the, it, but it's supported by 
people who believe in the cause. Hmm. So now um, the Institute of Race Relations, I'm a, on their council. So I am an elected official who basically just supposed to keep them accountable and all that. Hmm. Hmm. I just hardly ever do my job because France Grenier is just doing such a good job and all the people right. there. It's a nice, lazy job for me. It's unpaid, so it's good that it's lazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, um, so the Institute would be one of the organizations in South Africa, which I say you should support right. if you believe in the, uh, a, um, a positive future for the country. Which, uh, yeah. So you would need, uh, they support free markets, individualism, reason, uh, free speech, civil liberties, all that good stuff. And um, there's a lot of controversy in the news at the moment because the Daily Friend, which is a, their um, opinion site, and rational science biggest competition, not really because it's, they have mm, way more resources yeah. than we will ever have. So they've basically just taken a limelight, yeah. which is fine. Uh, the, at the end of the day, what matters is the cause. Right. And also lets me focus more of my time on my, what I actually enjoy, which is writing my fiction. Mm. But um, th- there was uh, a lot of controversy about a, um, an article about uh, criticizing Christianity. Mm. And, um, a lot of people have cut their funding of the institutes based on this, and a lot of conservatives have attacked the institute. Mm. But the problem is, is that um, an institute is not flinching at all because it stands by rights of freedom of speech, and also because the article is actually tongue in cheek, and right. I think that people were really overreacting. Mm. And um, and I think that it, it, it that further goes to show how important the institute is because it will stand as a platform for these unpopular views and also will um, not uh, bail to all this financial threats. Hmm. Um, And this is why it needs to have our continued support. And I think as long as Franz Crenier is at the helm, and also I can't see any of the possible successes to him screwing it up, Hmm. um, the Institute is a good organization. And um, Sorry, I wanted to talk specifically about... um, you know, you mentioned previously uh, that the Rational Standard um, at the time when it started, it was one of the only websites, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's grown differently since with podcasts and we, we have lots of um, uh, examples of this. But it, it at the time almost stood as a sole contender to a rising extreme, um, you almost want to say other side of the spectrum mm-hmm. opinion in terms of communism and socialism. And at least in, in, in my studies in data science, we've seen that uh, once one group, you know, they, they almost want to say they gain uh, popular uh, political support and they, you know, start to become the mainstream, they almost want to say uh, lose the, the attractiveness uh, or oh, sorry, sorry, they lose the momentum that they had in terms of growing because they are now the standard. And once you become the standard, you're not, you're not growing as much as anymore. So then their opinion, opinions become more and more extreme as to continue to grow as much as possible and gain the same amount of support. And this, this uh, effect in politics has a very polarizing nature because as soon as one's pushed to the one side of the extreme, the other side almost instinctively reacts, almost like a natural physics action-reaction type scenario. And um, especially in things like American politics, we see this quite well um, symbolized by uh, the two main political parties. And in South Africa, we almost have the scenario of where we also have a two political system as you know the, the dominant one and the opposition, but you have a scenario where they're constantly pushing against each other. So whatever the other one says, the other one's opposing it simply because they are the opposition. How exactly does um, the Rational Standard and the Institute for, Rational, for, for Race Relations deal with not 
becoming almost going to say the other end, the other extreme, and therefore, you know, pushing the other stream further away. And you just have this polarizing effect that just keeps pushing, 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 pushing against each other. How does it incorporate that discussion that you can actually, you know, have the discussion, not just being pushing people to both sides of the spectrum? So I think that this can actually be seen by the almost perpetual stagnation of liberal movements that okay. um, the Institute of Race Relations and the Rational Standards struggle to grow because um, we always stick to our principles, which means that uh, even while some people try to polarize and um, try to uh, uh, um, try to polarize us and try to go even more extreme, problems I don't really know how you go more extreme than full-on anarchy, um, which we do provide a platform for. And some people in Institute of Race Relations are sympathetic towards. They don't really speak about it because it's it's not something you can really lobby for, right. <laughs> try to convince right, the government yeah. to abolish itself. But yeah. um, it's, um, and I would say some people try to say that a lot of uh, classical liberals have been, liberal, uh, have been radicalized into the ultra-right, but I would say those people were never actual classical liberals or libertarians, or they've actually changed. They're no longer on the same spectrum. They've changed spectrum, um, mostly because they've probably become, um, their hatred for the enemy has become more than their love of liberty. And that's what I would say is the problem there. The rational standard um, has always been an uphill battle because uh, South Africa's views are you're either a collectivist or you are a borderline collectivist. Our, our far rights in South Africa are basically center-left right. and um, with a few exceptions in the Institute of Race Relations and the uh, things like the rational standard even though I don't like the left and right spectrum as well, but right. it's for the same right. reason I, like, I don't like the word conservative. I don't think they actually mean much because too many people have different ideas of what they mean. Hmm. But I digress. Um, I don't think that rational standard has really shifted its views that much over the years. And I think that might be an answer to why we've uh, semi-stagnated in our growth. I think there's more hmm. pertinent reasons. But... Um, in general, we just repeat the same message, liberty, reason, free markets, all that stuff. Mm. And it's also part of the reason why I don't write as many articles as I used to, because I think that most of the time I'm just going to be reiterating what I've already said. There's right. so many times I can just say that the solution to ESCOM is privatization. Yeah. And um, while some people are fine republishing the same article, just a rewording, I'd rather just go and write my cat drummond. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Um, so uh, bring it back to more of uh, the political uh, scenario in South Africa. Um, we have uh, movements such as the Free Cape movement, uh, where we feel like, um, especially for us in the Cape, it's, it's the, the political opinions of one group is too unrepresented by the um, population dominations of hmm. other areas in, in, in South Africa. And do you think that if this would ever, you know, what exactly does the future for South Africa hold if these type of mentalities spread to other states or sorry, other provinces as well? So it's not even the Free Cape movement anymore. Now, of course, Natal wants to move away as well because um, their interests are not, say, representative mm -hmm. by um, the, uh, the, 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 the parliament uh, here in, in the Western Cape and, of course, the seat of government in uh, Pretoria. Um, you know, a, Western Cape breakaway, continued ANC dominance or coalition led by the DA. What, where exactly do you think this, this South African political future goes? So to uh, preface this discussion, I think that the biggest sin that um, colonization in Africa left was its borders. The yeah. borders of many African countries, I'd say most of them actually, especially South Africa and Nigeria, is forcing a bunch of organically produced nations into a fabricated 
political entity. Hmm. The thing, South Africa is functionally an empire. It has multiple nations within it, which are being subjugated by it. The problem is, uh, I think empires can function. I think they're inevitable. They're not necessarily pleasant, but um, they can work. The problem is empires need to be efficient. They need to be powerful. They don't need to be authoritarian, but they need to have, uh, they need to run well. And the problem is the South African government cannot run well. Um, neither under apartheid and neither, uh, and especially not under the ANC. I think that maybe if the British empire never collapsed and they were still here, they could have kept things rolling. They managed to keep India relatively peaceful, despite the fact that they should be at least 30 different countries. I think they might've been able to keep South Africa ordered, but that's not what happened. They were so guilty at the end of the second world war that they basically said, okay, we know we technically won, but you guys can just run the country now. Um, Oh yeah. And by the way, it's one country now. Hmm. And um, the problem is, is initially with under apartheid that the Nat, the Nats did not want to run it to the benefit of everyone underneath. And we, if we learn anything about empires, if you do not include a portion of your population into the society, you're going to alienate them and then they're going to sack Rome. That's what ends up happening. And that's what happens in Africa. Um, and, um, and this is what's happening in South Africa today is that not a, we have this extremely inefficient, incompetent government trying to rule over a bunch of people who, even if they're not conscious of it, want to be in their own independent countries. Hmm. Now, secession itself is exceptionally hard. Now, I support Cape secession. I'll tell people I'm not South African. I'm a Cape Tonian. Hmm. I identify with the Cape. And even then, if I'm being very strict, I'll say I identify with the southern suburbs of, the, of Cape right. Town. Right. I, I, I will go Claremont secession. <laughs> but... Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Cape is very unique. It's politically unique in that it is, I would say, an actual functioning democracy. Um, it's a liberal democracy with institutions of work with skilled administrators and bureaucrats. I don't even think that's thanks to the DA. I think that um, even if the ANC got in charge, if they didn't fire our bureaucrats, the DA, uh, sorry, the Cape would still run relatively fine. We have a political tradition here that is sophisticated. We are a European city in Africa, or as close as we're going to get. And this is why people say that we are the first world part of South Africa. Mm. But in the rest of South Africa is a banana republic. It has inefficient government, and it's not interested in democracy. It's Mm. uh, either run by tribal systems, um, or it's run by patrimonial networks of corrupt leaders basically exchanging favors. And for all intents and purposes, a lot of the population do not seem to care or mind about or mind this. And this is why the ANC keep getting elected. And this is why the FF are gaining votes because people want more of that. And they want the false promises of socialism. I do not think that South Africa will survive as a country. I think that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when the country breaks up. And I think that the goal of secession should not be to force a referendum. I think re- referendums are a stu- stupid idea because the, t- the only time you should ever have a referendum is when you know you'll win. And if you know you'll win, why are you having a referendum? You should just right. declare independence. And um, I think that the goal of cessation should be to secure a um, local government that is pro-cessation. This is what the Cape Independence Advocacy Group is doing by lobbying the DA, which I think is probably the best thing to do at the moment because as much as the DA is irritating, um, they do hold power in the Cape. So if you can win them over to cessation, we basically already won. Because after that, it's just a matter of time before the country falls apart and then we can just secede. And there's nothing that the South African government can do about it because there will be no South African government in anything but name. 
Um, so I think it's very important that regional blocs who want to be independent nations need to start preparing for this inevitability for when South Africa finally just collapses as a country. And yeah. so we don't stick like a, an undead state like Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I, I do want to say that, you know, from the other side of the argument, there, there are benefits to, I don't want to say collectivism ideas, because it's more of an economic uh, principle that I'm, that I'm highlighting. Um, there's, there's benefits to globalization in terms of resources, oh, no, yeah, resources and, you know, uh, knowledge sharing and stuff like that. But that almost always um, bleeds over to political opinions, because the economics are so inherently tied in, in terms of where people travel, where they go to work and what they do. Uh, do you believe that there's a possible system where you give, um, you, you have a, a, a country of South Africa, but you have a more also to say, you know, one of the possible solutions is a federal system, or perhaps in one more where the different states have their own, oh, sorry, not states, provinces in the United States, their states have their own autonomy in terms of how they're, they're governed and how they work. But there is a spirit of cooperation in terms of the rest of the country, in terms of economics and how things fare. Because in the past, we've seen that I think South Africa is an example of that in terms of of Africa as a whole, where if one state, when allowed to be self-governed and they possess the different perspectives that makes them economically successful, that the others just generally migrate that way. You know, that's, that's kind of a bad, that's, that's kind of a scenario as to what brings about the polarization in the UK, for example, is because they advanced economically they became a quite rich country and then all of their colonies just moved there and now they have an immigration situation which is not necessarily sustainable so that you know again is the problem with allowing one party to be governed themselves and become so much more successful than other parties which has other views is is there is there a way to balance this and have a nice almost want to say collaborative solution or do you feel like pure independence is is definitely a, the, the 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 hardest but best way to go so i think that the problem with wanting to go for federalism is that um, the NC would never go for it. They're an absolutist centralist government. They believe in, at best, a strong central state, and at worst, a strong, a strong central totalitarian state. And I do not think that, I think they would, they would force the country into being like Zimbabwe before they allow a federal system. And this is something which I think that it's a pipe dream by the DA, by the DA to think that they could go for this, especially seeing that the DA doesn't even try to, that doesn't even open their mouths about federalism anymore. It's a dead topic, sadly. And I think that the only way we would ever achieve federalism is by actually aiming high first and aiming at complete independence and then compromising with federalism. Because if right. the South African government can see that, okay, all the cases there in Western Cape and all these other places are wanting to split, they may be like, okay, okay, we'll give you more local autonomy, we'll federalize as a compromise, but they're not going to do that. If we come, you know, begging, uh, begging with a hat in our hands and saying, please, sir, can we have some more local autonomy? Um, right. You have to be aggressive with them because at the moment they very arrogant and rightfully so know that they set the terms of the debate. And this is the problem with the DA is the DA compromises before they even present their actual goal. Right. Um, you, when in politics, politics is the art of compromise, but you should always go in there initially with your main goal, hard uh, ball, uh, um, hard ball them. And then uh, 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 debate with them and then compromise after the debate, see where you can go from there. The problem is DA is not confident in its views, mostly because it became a mass party and accepted too many non-liberals into its ranks. So it doesn't know what it is anymore. And it mm -hmm. uh, has, is having an identity crisis. Hopefully that is um, getting fixed though. There's some recent news and I think I'm a little bit more confident about the DA. I told some people years ago that I would only consider voting with the DA again 
after they uh, get rid of uh, Herman Mashaba, Musi, and uh, Pumzele Van Dam. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just Pumzele left, and uh, she's going, being forced on sabbatical. Well, apparently forced or not forced, I don't care, as long right. as she's gone permanently afterwards. Because mm. she is uh, represents what I think is wrong with the DA. Mm. And is, um, so, yes? Sorry, no. So is, is, is it because that the, the concepts that they, 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 try to co- the, they try to go for the most popular, I almost want to say the one they think that has the highest, you know, the largest audience as we related to, to um, mm. you know, sci-fi and fantasy, because they're trying to go for the popular opinion or the moderate opinion that they're actually too lukewarm. And that exactly. the almost want to say the two ideas again. I, I don't know you. I, I know you don't like this, but this is common what people <laughs> describe it as the two sides of the spectrum. As you know, you have communist, um, communism and socialism on the one side, and the other side you have you know classically the people call it conservatism. But you know uh, those those ideas are attractive because they almost want to say simplified. Whereas ideas that are truly moderate and and balance things out, such as uh, you know libertarianism, is just too complex of an idea for people mm. to formulate. Is that why it doesn't get as much support? Yeah, so I think the big problem with uh, libertarianism and uh, classical liberalism is that they're inherently soft ideologies. By soft, I mean they do not tell you how to live your life. They're not absolutist. There's no, um, you're, no you're not like required to you know march on this day or you know, line up for your food cop- coupons there. It's basically the ideology of leave people alone, people will leave you alone, and just get on with life. And a lot of people don't like that because it's not prescriptive enough. And it's also, it's not, it doesn't win hearts and minds as much. When you talk about fascism and um, communism, they're making big promises. When libertarianism is not making big promises, it's saying, we're going to get rid of those things. And so you can just live your life. When, um, what sounds better? Uh, the workers of the world will unite and we will have plenty and, you know, none of us will go hungry. Or the fascist one of we will destroy, uh, our enemies will be, um, are crushed and then we'll have uh, and then we'll have a state where we all part of this great thing togetherness and unity and all that or libertarianism which is dudes just get on with it and um and it is a marketing problem and i think the ways that you can re um you can provide a different aesthetic for liberalism and i think in a way we can actually learn from the communists and the fascists and the way that they brand their ideologies without taking on their principles but at the end of the day, we are a we are the ideology of tolerance, and the problem is is that an ideology of tolerance is always going to be beaten out by intolerance. So my proposition would be to be intolerant of intolerance, right. and um, be much more confident in our views, mm. and also um, just be proud in our views, and also realize that and be a lot a lot stricter in idea, and hammer home the point that you don't need an absolutist ideology ideologies like let's think about buddhism here you you get shinto buddhists you get confucian buddhists you don't need to be just buddhist you don't need to be just libertarian you can be a christian libertarian you can be a muslim libertarian you don't need to base your entire life around libertarianism because libertarianism's idea is how does the state interact with the individual not how do you interact with everyone else Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you don't um, need to just be fantasy. You can be all of the subgenres as well. As yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so just as a point to end off of, this is something that um, I want to say a lot of people that lean towards liberalism and want to see a hope for South Africa. Um, the, the question that they almost struggle with is that they don't necessarily see 
a future where this works out positively for them. So there was a fantastic video by Economics Explained on YouTube that talked about the economics of South Africa. And he mentioned and described in detail the, um, almost want to say, uh, the, the, the brain drain and also the um, compartmentalization where people kind of like retreat into their own places or they go to a different country with their skills to build a better mm -hmm. future there in a place that, you know, shares more of their political views. Do you think that South Africans, especially skilled South Africans with the current brain drain situation that we have, should stay in the country and wait for the possible scenario of, you know, independent, uh, you know, provinces where they could stay in a province with which they politically align, or should they set up shop overseas and maybe come like back later or just, you know, permanently move? So I think it's all about cost benefits analysis. Um, okay. I think that if you're in the Cape, the Cape is going to be relatively fine. Even if there's a civil war, we'll be quite shielded. We'll be shielded. And even, um, and uh, even though there will be floods of migrants coming to the Cape, which we've been dealing with for a long time already, um, it's one of my criticisms where people say, oh, we're kind of independence because, you know, we'll be flooded by refugees. And I'm like, well, we already are. And, um, and this, at least under independence, we'll be able to set our own policies in order to either look after them or just cut welfare so then there will be no incentive for them to come. Um, then, um, but I think it's, at the end of the day, if you can immigrate to another country and set up a life there, I think it's probably the smarter thing to do. Um, it depends yeah. though. Like I know a lot of people have gone to America and Canada and hate it because even though it is a more uh, stable society, a more prosperous society, South Africans and Cape Tonians or whatever, the people that belong to the currently subjugated nations of Southern Africa, um, we have our own culture. We have our own borderline frontier way of living where we, um, where, well, we do have to deal with a lot of terrible labor regulations and all that. There's also freedoms that we have due to the incompetence of the, uh, of the government. We don't have to worry that much about government surveillance um, in South Africa because they simply do not have the competence to be able to implement it. And also there's a lot of opportunities here because the, uh, every, everybody's desperate. If you are willing to hustle, you can, uh, there are still opportunities here. When, if you go to America, you're going to be dealing with one of the most hardworking populations in the world, um, which is something that people don't want. But I will say you should have contingency plans. Cessation is, un is still, while I think that breakup is inevitable, that doesn't necessarily mean that stable countries will form in the ashes. So I will say always have contingency plans um, and think about uh, um, what am I going to do if I have to stay and is there a place where I can escape to? Right, Keep all right. that in mind. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's also interesting that um, I have friends and family that that are overseas that that moved with their professions, but almost I just want to say inevitably they would find the other South Africans in their community, and those mm. would be the people that they connect with and identify identify the most with. You know, as even though we're made out of different groups, the idea of being a South African and the benefits and the reasons why we lived here still lives on with you, even though you go to a different mm. place. So I was interested in seeing that or asking you rather that if skilled South Africans move overseas and they create these, I think there's a website, where did we go.com or where did we go.co.za that shows all the different expats and some of them tell their stories that they almost form these small communities. And even though you think you're moving to a place that you politically agree with, um, but then in the end up, you, you, you know, figure out that there's more complexity as well, you know, is, is, is that better to have a contingency plan, go there, create your African community, or then come back here and, and stick it out? 
I'd say it depends on where you are, depends on who you are, depends on your job. If your job relies on something that's going to fall apart as the country's infrastructure falls apart, you don't have a future here. So leave. For me, I make my money uh, from overseas, but if uh, legislation falls through, like tax treaties fall through, I may need to move because I won't be able to get paid. Um, And um, also uh, on the topic of identity and community, I think it's also... um, it's not just the South African culture because South Africa has many different dozens of different cultures. Right. And I think though that humans are going to always gravitate towards the familiar and they are. Um, so as, if I was to immigrate, I'm not probably not going to identify with an Afrikaans community. I, I'm a, an English Cape Tonian. I'll probably find other English Cape Tonian, English South African, English Cape Tonians to identify right. with. But also even then, I will pro- if I meet an, uh, an Afrikaner or a Zulu or Kosa in London, I'm probably going to talk with them, get along with them because we have a common background. We have things we can talk about. It's why you always have a childhood friend that even if you have completely diverging interests, you have a shared history to discuss. Hmm. And I think that's the same for um, expats. Right, right. Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Nicholas. Uh, is there anything you'd like to else to add or plug or something uh, before uh, we conclude the interview? Although I, of course, like to plug my series because that's my bread yes. and butter. Yeah. Um, if you like uh, urban fantasy, please check out the Cat Ramen series on Amazon. Um, its short synopsis is it's about a UCT student who hunts monsters to pay for her tuition and her rent. Um, so if you enjoy action-packed urban fantasy with a little bit of mystery and a great alternative magical look at South Africa, um, I think you'll enjoy it. If you enjoy science fiction, I also have the Warpmancer series, which is a military sci-fi set far in the future with alien empires and uh, um, moral quandaries and revolutions and all that good stuff. Um, You can find all of that um, on Amazon. You can also find me at my website, nicholaswoodsmith.com. Fantastic. Thank you. I'll, I'll actually definitely be checking those out. Um, you've, you've definitely piqued my interest in some of the things. I've, I really enjoy the, the philosophical element to uh, sci-fi and fantasy. And I'll, I'll check that out. But thank you so much. Yeah. Um, this has been Worldview. And we thank Nicholas for sharing his worldview with us. If you made it thus far, you most definitely like our content. We encourage you all consider to subscribe, like, and, and donate on Patreon. Uh, and until our next view, Worldview, thank you for watching.